Welcome to DLSE. I'm Denisa Kostovicheva, Associate Professor in the Department of Government, and it is my great pleasure to introduce tonight's event, which is hosted by the Conflict Research Group. Tonight, we address the question of inequality, and specifically pro, what are the most affecting ways of communicating and changing inequality? We are delighted to welcome tonight's panel that spans the worlds of arts, media, and academia, and hope that this diversity will promise a very stimulating discussion. I think the discussion that needs to be had when it comes to the issues of inequality and the dire consequences it has. The discussion will center on the work of artist Mark Neville, standing next to me. Mark is based in London, and his work lies at the intersection of art and documentary. His photographies, uh, photographs and films investigate the social function of art. His show, London Pittsburgh, on issues of inequality and race, is showing at the Alan Christea Gallery in London until the 24th of January. A small retrospective of Mark's work is on show at the LSE's atrium, just around the corner, until 22nd of January. Uh, Mark has also ventured into the conflict zone and uh, has produced some very powerful work uh, from his stay in Afghanistan, and it was showed at the Imperial War Museum in the summer of last year, 2014. With us tonight is also Gwendolyn Sasse, sitting at uh, your far right, Professor in Comparative Politics at the University of Oxford and Professorial Fellow at Nuffield College. Professor Sasse curated Mark's exhibition at the atrium, and she will moderate the discussion. I'm also very pleased to introduce Yasmin Albay-Brown, journalist and writer and a columnist for The Independent and London Evening, London's Evening Standard. Um, Yasmin Albay-Brown is also a professor of journalism at the University of Lincoln and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Center. And last but not the least, LSE's Tim Newburn, professor of criminology and social policy. Professor Newburn's research interests have focused on policing, on security, youth justice, and policymaking. He has authored and co-edited over 30 books on these subjects. And uh, recently, together with Paul Lewis of The Guardian newspaper, Professor Newburn has been involved in a very innovative project entitled the Reading the Riots in the immediate aftermath of the 2011 riots in London and other cities. Uh, sadly, Polly Toynbee, who was uh, supposed to be here tonight, cannot be here because she was sent on a short notice assignment for The Guardian. So we can follow tonight's event uh, at hashtag LSC inequality. So just in terms of uh, proceedings, we'll start with uh, Mark showing us images from his series uh, London Pittsburgh. Uh, which will be followed by a small discussion uh, among the panelists. And for the last 30 minutes, we'll give you an opportunity to uh, ask questions. So before we proceed, can I please invite you to give a warm welcome to our panel. Yes, uh, uh, just uh, uh, one note. Uh, when we proceed uh, uh, to questions, uh, Yasmin will uh, have to leave, 
but I think we really appreciate that she has managed to come. Sorry, I'm just very ill, otherwise I'd stay. (laughs) But she will be here for the debate. We'll sit down Mark, there. over to you. Great, thank, we'll, uh, thank you. Um, I want to say a big thank you to the LSE, a uh, big thank you to Gwen Sass and um, Helen Waters from the Alan Christea Gallery who have uh, organised uh, this event tonight, um, together with Gemma Colgan at the gallery as well. Huge thank you to the Alan Christea Gallery who are showing the exhibition London Pittsburgh at the moment. And again, a big thank you to Gwen Sass who curated the show on at the atrium at the moment. So, What I'm going to do, um, and thank you, Tim and uh, Yasmin, for coming as well. Um, What I'm going to do is whiz through, like, 10 years' work in about 20 minutes, so excuse me if it's a bit quick fire. Um, Could you kill the lights, please? Thank you. Okay, so I first started making this kind of socially engaged work about 10 years ago. Um, And I've been thinking recently about why I started doing this. And I look back at my childhood, and uh, this is me eating an ice cream here. And this is my grandfather, who was captain of a ship during World War II. And he came back with what I now recognise as PTSD. But at the time, I didn't know what it was. He just used to go around shouting at everyone in the family and taking pictures through this kind of uh, waist-level viewfinder camera. And um, I think this kind of sublimated itself into my career as a mature artist now, in that I'm always looking at issues of representation and ways in which the camera can be used in a positive way, as a kind of um, a way to communicate positive issues to an audience. Uh, the first of these projects was a Port Glasgow book project, which was um, made uh, in Port Glasgow, this kind of shipbuilding town on the west coast of Scotland. And my idea was that every single house in the whole of Port Glasgow would get a free copy of my book of social, social documentary images of the town. Um, and, but the book would not be commercially available. And the idea was that normally these kind of magnum-type books end up on the coffee tables of English white middle-class people like me and not on the coffee tables of the people represented in the book. So it was a kind of subversion of audience, if you like. Um, It used to be a huge shipbuilding town, Port Glasgow. Now there's only one shipbuilder's left. This is Ferguson's. Um, This is the first picture in the book. It's a kind of metaphor for Port Glasgow, so it's beautiful but but damaged at the same time. Um, These are kids on the street. I tried to get the National Portrait Gallery to use this as their Christmas card. um, uh, (laughs) They, they bought the picture but declined to um, make it festive. Um, another way in which I tried to subvert the way in which these kind of magnum books always um, tell you what to think about truth and reality was uh, I asked a fashion designer friend of mine to make these bonnets and I asked her to make them look historically indeterminate so they looked a bit 1920s but also a bit futuristic. And the idea would be that someone looking at this picture in the book in 50 years' time would go, wow, look at the hats that they used to wear in Port Glasgow in 2004, and it would be total bullshit. (laughs) Um, This is the ancient order of the Hibernian Social Club. Um, This is Donna. Uh, Some of the pictures in the book are based on the lighting and painting. So this is Joseph Wright of Derby, and this is my kind of version of it in the um, town hall at a wedding event. This is St. Francis Social Club. Uh, This is a Bonnie Baby competition. Um, The most um, 
I don't know. The, the most celebrated images from the book seem to be these, which are taken at Port Glasgow Town Hall. And every Christmas they have about seven nights of parties. And I spend about a week installing these huge flash units in the rigging. So it's about as high as this. I go up on scaffolding, install these big light boxes with soft boxes on them so that when I took a picture with my camera with a flash on it, the flash on my camera would activate all these soft boxes in the dance hall. So I could get this huge spread of light, because normally it's quite dark at these events. So Betty at the front would be sharp and focused, but so would someone 20 metres away. The only problem was all these people were on office parties. This is 2004, and they had these kind of boots disposable cameras with flashes on them. So they're going to take a picture of their workmate and click. <laughs> the whole hall would be flooded with light. So I had to go around apologising to all these people whose office pictures were terribly overexposed. <laughs> um, I like this image because it looks a bit kind of... She looks a bit kind of almost like a kind of Madonna figure with a crown of thorns here, and she looks like a kind of statue. Um, the other thing I did was try and subvert the way in which these books were delivered. So um, originally, Royal Mail had quoted me £14,000 to deliver the books, all 8,000 of them, to every single house in the whole of Port Glasgow. And I soon realised that this was a kind of uh, an inappropriate way to spend the funds. So I approached the local boys' football team and said, listen, if, I, if you can deliver the books, about 100 kids in the, in the club, if you can deliver the books, I can pay you the £14,000 from the budget, you know, and then you can spend it on trips abroad or football kit or whatever you want. So this seemed to me uh, kind of conceptually and ethically much better than giving the money to Royal Mail. Um, so I went back to the council who were holding the purse strings for the budget and said, I've got this great idea for feeding funds back into the community. Can we do it? And they said, no, we can't possibly do that. What happens if one of the kids gets bitten by a dog or attacked or health and safety reasons, basically? Anyway, I went to a local MP and the local MP talked to them and uh, to local council and eventually we got it done. So um, these are the, this is the local boys' football team or some of them. Uh, this is the day the books were delivered. 2004, about 10, 11 years ago. Um, here I am, looking like a paedophile. <laughs> um, so the, the project got realised after 20 nervous breakdowns and lots of public money. And um, I started to get all these responses, emails and so forth. And this is one of the best ones, I think. Um. <laughs> and then all these articles started coming out in the local press, the Greenock Telegraph, which is like the kind of jungle drums for the local community. And every day they'd run a new story. So are you for or against the book, you know? Um, this is Betty, who's on the front cover. Um, so uh, she says, I know a lot of people in it. I can't get over how good the photos are, so thank you, Betty. Uh, this woman thinks I've exploited the people in Port Glasgow. Uh, this is the manager of the boys' football club who can't bring himself wholly to endorse the project because it's art and, you know, it's kind of threatening in some way. Um, yeah. This guy thinks it's, it's honest. Um, the most extreme reaction I had to the project was um, all the 
Protestant residents in one particular street had a, had a street meeting, got together, dumped their copies of the book at the back of the Catholic club and set fire to them because they thought there were too many pictures taken in Catholic pubs and clubs and not enough pictures taken in Protestant pubs and clubs. So I got a call from the fire brigade saying, your books are on fire, Mr Neville. So I went down and took a couple of snapshots. So at the time I was kind of really upset, but now I see it as in the kind of interesting gauge of the sectarian temperature of the place, if you, if you see what I mean. Um, and then I also included all these questionnaires in the book to try and get some kind of response and uh, encourage people to deliver them back to the town hall. So total waste of time and money, a first-year student could have done a lot better, so if there's any first-year students out there, please go ahead. Um, and then when the show was over, I thought, well, that's it. But then after years of, of working away in the wilderness, suddenly the art world became very interested in this project. And uh, this is a show at Modern Art Oxford, curated by um, Andrew Nan, called Local Stories. And um, we started to try and reconfigure the whole project as a white cube or a gallery exhibition. So the only way I thought we could do this was not to show the pictures just as social documents on the wall, but we also included all this kind of community response, the emails, um, the, the articles, so that the community had a voice other than just being reduced to a kind of two-dimensional photograph. And the other strange thing that happened was the book started to become uh, really quite valuable. So it started to sell on eBay for like 500 bucks, and um, people who hadn't burnt their book in Port Glasgow could actually put it on eBay and make some money. So it's almost like I tricked them twice, you know. <laughs> um, and this led into another project on the Isle of Butte, again, a strong working community, again, a demographic of about 8,000 people. And it's basically a farming community, and every year the Mount Stewart House on the Isle of Butte commissions. They own most of the island. They commission uh, an artist to make a new artwork. Uh, this is Mount Stewart House where the Butte family lives. They've been commissioning artists since Reynolds and Gainsborough, and these are some of my images on the wall of the bedroom here. I basically spent a year and a half with the farming community and tried to give them some kind of visibility in Mount Stewart House. Mount Stewart House is full of these kind of arts and crafts which represent farming in a very generic way. And um, I wanted to give the residents there a kind of identifiable face, if you like. So this is one of my photographs. It's another one. This is a goat pedicure. Um, yeah, lamb on the table picture. This is Annie who kind of adopted me. This is Amos who breeds bulldogs. I'm going to whiz through these, so I do apologise. This is Annie, who kind of, yeah, as I said, adopted me, and she just let animals, myself included, wander in and out of her kitchen. And uh, the Scottish Parliament bought this piece, and uh, I put in a contract that the chauffeur-driven Jaguar had to pick her up um, from, her, from her farm and take her to the opening of the Scottish Parliament in Edinburgh as part of the acquisition. And it was the first time in 50 years she'd left, uh, left uh, her home, left the island. Um, this led into another book project, Deeds Not Words, which is about a toxic waste court case in Corby in Northampton. Again, a very strong Scottish community who moved there for work in the steel mills, which closed in the 1980s. And at the same time, um, um, they started re to reclaim the land of the former steel site, and they did it in a really shoddy way. And lots of kids were born with birth defects, and it was identified that it was more likely than not that these were caused by the improper land reclamation of the former British steel site. 
So I made a book about this which incorporated a kind of portrait of the people of Corby centering on this idea of body image and I coupled it with all this scientific and legal information about the court case and what local councils can do to avoid such birth defects in the future when they reclaim contaminated land. And the book was sent out, this is Ben who was born with two fingers on one hand, Um, the book was sent out to every single local authority in the whole of the UK in an attempt to change current government regulation on toxic waste disposal and land reclamation. So again, it was this idea that art can have a targeted audience to have an impact on the real world in some sense, or it should attempt to. Uh, again, the show was later configured as, a, as an exhibition at the Photographer's Gallery, and we also accompanied that also as a symposium. And Joan Wally MP came down, and she's presented a manifesto this year to Parliament in the hope to finally get the law changed in some respects regarding this. So the idea here was, can, can a photo book, can art change government policy? Um, this led into a couple of other projects. The first um, part of which is showing at the Alan Christay Gallery at the moment, uh, Here is London, um, was commissioned by the New York Times. And this was a much more untargeted platform for the work, if you like. So it's New York Times online. I had six weeks to produce a body of work, more or less about anything I wanted uh, within London. So I looked at the extremes of London, black, white, um, middle class, working class, um, This is uh, some of the Grove Adventure Playground, where they teach the most wonderful cooking skills and life skills and so forth. Brilliant place. Uh, London Metal Exchange. Uh, Occupy London, who were actually in a uh, UBS bank around the corner from St Paul's at the time. Uh, Lloyds of London. And my strategy here was very much to employ a photographic style, again, which was historically indeterminate, And the point of doing that was to suggest that all these economic and social forces that we're going through at the moment haven't really changed since the 1970s and 1980s. Uh, In fact, they have changed. They've got worse. So I looked at the iconic photographers of that time who were also looking at Britain and America going through a recession, and I tried to look at their kind of compositions and the um, lighting and the film stock that they used. This is Boston Arms in North London. Again, Summerford Grove Adventure Playground. Um, Bankers at Bougie's Nightclub in South Kensington where Prince Harry goes partying in his Nazi outfit and everything. Um, Summerford Grove Adventure Playground again. Boston Arms. Uh, This is a school in Hackney where it's 97% non-white and I think they speak something like 26 different languages. I asked them to give me um, New York attitude, Lady Gaga. Um, this is Mitch Epstein, a photographer I like from America. Who's um, This is in Pittsburgh during the 80s. So again, I was looking at these photographers who also documented recession. Uh, Gary Winogrand from the 60s, one of his party shots. Gary Winogrand, again, who looked at issues of race in 1960s America. And this is one of my photographs from the London-Pittsburgh series, um, this is a father-daughter dance, and she's saying, I've got you by the balls, Daddy. <laughs> um, this is a rave. Again, in Pittsburgh, this is a um, high school prom, Rum Shakers nightclub, Republican fundraiser, the oldest woman in the world, um, a hat parade in Braddock, 
This is in Braddock. So some of these pictures are taken in a very affluent part of Pittsburgh called Sir Wickley, and others are taken in, in, in Braddock, which is less affluent and 99% African-American. This is where I stayed. This is my no, neighbour, Joe, and this is the one remaining still mill in Pittsburgh. Um, this is uh, Beatrice, who was the only news, news agent in Braddock who used to sell um, coffee, um, Chinese Viagra, um, crack. Um, uh, this is one of my other neighbours. These are black people bumping and grinding. And these are white people bumping and grinding. <laughs> Very classy white people. Um, fundraising event. Sewickley Ballerinas. Braddock. These two make a great pair, I think. <laughs> Excuse me? Um, and I quickly went through some stuff shot in Helmand as a war artist in 2011. Um, I was there for about three months, hosted by 16 Air Assault Brigade, and I was thrown all over Helmand to patrol bases. And, um, I employed various strategies there as well to try and uh, communicate information about the conflict in a way which the media didn't seem to me to be doing. Um, one of these was filming against backdrops, which were based on previous conflicts. So this is real-life action outside a patrol base filmed in slow motion against a backdrop based on a Paul Nash painting from World War I. Um, I also took photographs which predominantly look at how young people are in Helmand, uh, both the locals and us as a fighting force. Me making new friends here. Um, so a lot of the people I met out there I'm still actually friends with and they come and stay with me in the East End of London. A lot of them have left the army and um, almost all of them are struggling to readjust to civilian life, as you would expect. Um, this is Private Joker, who became one of my best friends, uh, who's now a professional wrestler. Um, so my current project, which I'm going to print tomorrow in Barcelona, is um, called Battle Against Stigma, and that's being sent out to Defence Mental Health Services and to mental health veteran charities throughout the UK in an attempt to reduce the stigma that many troops feel about coming forward when they suffer from PTSD. Uh, I've been in talks with the MOD for about a year about this publication, and uh, the idea was to combine my images of Helmand with texts written by people serving and former servicemen who used to think that PTSD was bullshit and now they've changed their minds about it. Um, but the MOD refused to release these stories for publication if they were accompanied by my images in the same book because they argued that my images, it would therefore suggest that everyone pictured in my images of Helmand would be necessarily suffering from PTSD or adjustment disorder. And I said that wouldn't be the case, that I had experience making books and, you know, that I wouldn't suggest that or I'd make it very clear that it wasn't the case, but they, they refused to, to accept that. But they said, you can use some stock images instead from our library. So I said, well, that's kind of missing the point, you know, about the power of images to communicate the truth. And um, 
you know, I was nominated for the Pulitzer, don't you know? And, but no, it <laughs> didn't seem to make any difference. So my idea is, and they don't know this yet, so please don't tell anyone, is, um, is I'm going to split them into two volumes in a slipcase. This is the dummy here. So the idea is, of course, that I've kept my word and I'm not printing them in the same book, but they're going to be sent out as two volumes. One the stories and one my pictures in one slipcase. Um, I'm going to stop talking now. I hope that's given a kind of idea about my thoughts on how to picture inequality in some sense. So thank you very much. Right, so Mark gave us so much to look at and to think about. I think we could be here for hours. Um, well, the key task is to somehow narrow our discussion to something that we can reasonably sort of cover in the time we've got. Um, um, my role here tonight is, is simply the mod- being the moderator of the first part of the, of the discussion. And I just want to say on a personal note that I've learned a lot uh, from working with Mark on the show and beyond. And we might even embark on a new project together. And I was very keen on hosting an event that frontloads art and an artist's perspective on issues that a lot of us in an academic setting uh, work on, in this case, in particular, issues of inequality, to some extent race and parts of your work, or issues of conflict. And I think we can probably all, all of us from a more academic um, perspective, and I think there's a very mixed audience in tonight, which is nice, um, we, can, we can learn from front-loading pictures and the Im- immediacy of pictures. And I know you also work with text, so it's not only pictures. Mm. That's also interesting about your work. But front-loading images, I think, is something that doesn't come naturally to, to academics. Um, and while I think it's no, no longer true that we live in an ivory tower, um, it's still sometimes hard to make, as Tim perhaps will, will tell us a little bit, um, it's quite hard sometimes to package academic research in a particular time frame and also to get it out to actually um, shape part of the public discourse. And although Mark's work actually lengthens the time horizon in terms of the work that goes into these pictures with great immediacy, immediacy I think academic research kind of struggles um, perhaps with, with, with the reverse. And of course, Yasmin's work has... Um, Uh, for many years combined, I think, different perspectives, so in one person, whereas I think maybe many of us have collaborated to get the different perspectives, you seem to combine them in your your own work, so your own personal background um, has allowed you access to communities and stories we don't often hear in the media, but you're also uh, a major player in the established media. So maybe by focusing on, in particular, the themes of inequality and to some extent race, maybe we could hear from our two panelists, first of all, their reactions to Mark's work, and then they could tie in a bit of their own work and how how they've tried to research but also communicate um, these issues in their own work. Yasmin, shall we start with you? Um, Yes, forgive me, my voice isn't very good today, but the first thing, Mark, um, I was very struck by is your powers of persuasion. (laughs) I mean, goodness, you know, people who really don't, and quite rightly don't, trust image makers 
um, who have spent lifetimes being subjects of research, of photographs, of films, um, uh, you know, objectified, how you got them to be with you. So I think what you must do is get a job here on the art of persuasion, and I would enrol myself, because I think it's an extraordinary achievement, that, to win that level of trust. Uh, and it can't have been easy. I don't think it could have, they could have embraced you straight away, handsome though you are. Um, um, and and uh, so it would be really interesting to know how you, you kind of do go through that process and mean it so that you're not play-acting. You're not doing that because you want these results, but you're actually doing it genuinely. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, yeah, I think that's something you have and I don't, and it would be a really fantastic lesson to have. But on, in terms of the inequality agenda, um, um, <coughs> thank you for saying what you said. But, of course, these days, <coughs> if you're a journalist of colour and a woman, uh, and in my case I'm an African I'm an Indian, I'm a Pakistani, I'm a Muslim. It's all, you know, the whole baggage um, and the whole very rich heritage. One of the things that hap- is happening here and in America, less, less so perhaps in America, but it is happening in America too, is that this whole post-racial myth has taken over so that it's almost impolite now to say there is terrible inequality in our society. I'm going to talk about race, but every time I talk about race, I'm, I'm, I say this truthfully, every time I talk about race inequality, I get told, what about class? As if, if I talk about class, um, that's okay, but I can't talk about race. The, the permission, the why we need permission, is, is a problem. Um, the permission that you need to now have to talk about obvious injustices and inequalities um, is rarely given. Even on my paper, which is very good on race, um, colleagues of mine often say to me, aren't you tired of singing that old song as if it's, you know, I'm singing Doris Day because I can't learn new words of a Madonna song, as if it's something I enjoy, as if it's something I, you know, is part of my career. Um, it's, it's quite alarming. So the experience of racism is now considered less important than the complaining of it, and the complaining of it is unacceptable. Does this make sense to you? Um, my head is, so if you say that was racist, I'm not talking about the silly um, uh, internet things, oh, he said this and she said, I'm talking about genuine racial injustices which have grown, as we know, as poverty grows. Um, in, you know, we, we saw the communities we're talking about. So it seems to me it's very important that pictures, because words are no longer allowed, that pictures should capture the inequality story. Television has more or less abandoned that story. I am so shocked that British television has not made a single program, for example, in recent years, on how immigrants feel day in, day out 
to be talked about in the way Farage and his awful gang and the BBC and Andrew Green and all of them talk about us. What do we feel like every day to be described in this way? No television program has been made on that. Race is not an issue on British television anymore. So I think I'm very excited by the idea that there is a medium. And my final two points would be Within the race equality, there are other complications, of course, now. Uh, what destroys lives, say, for uh, Muslim people or Muslim women is injustice of various kinds, and some of it is internal and some of it is external. I interviewed recently, I didn't interview, I talked to a very interesting Somali man for a long time who had been flirting with al-Qaeda and spent time in prison. He's a really nice man. He said to me, listen, all my life I have been burning with anger. My father was a bully. My mother was lovely, but she allowed him to bully all of us. They got me a woman to marry that I had nothing in common with. I don't blame her at all, but this is not my life. I know nothing about sex. We had a child. There was n I never knew who I was. I was only angry, and so I went and did what I did. It, and this line I will never forget. It is not easy being a Muslim outside or inside. And these um, incredibly difficult um, existences now make it quite difficult to talk purely in terms of power, white power and um, people who don't have power, although that is a crucial issue and remains so. You know, I'll never stop saying that. But at the same time, you have to also, the resilience that once people had, like me, is no longer available to young people because they're also tormented on the inside. So there's a huge story here which we are barely covering. And I think it's a terrible tragedy. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let me follow the same pattern as Jasmine and, and say one or two words in response to Mark's work and then uh, briefly say one or two words about research and, and my work. But I'll keep that very, very brief because it's much less interesting. Um, so first of all, I'm enormously pleased to have been invited here to speak, but to be introduced to this work, um, some of which I realised, not of London Pittsburgh, but some of Mark's earlier work I realised that I was familiar with without necessarily being familiar with Mark's name. And then I was invited to appear here and was very kindly sent the book, which I've enjoyed hugely, and the images many of which you saw on the screen, I think, are extraordinarily powerful, but, I want, but powerful in a way that I wasn't quite expecting, given the nature of the thing, things that we were asked to talk about, because they're slightly subversive, I think, in the sense of inviting us to think about things um, almost without realising that that's what we're thinking about. So these are, I felt, were images which were um, remarkable, I think, Yasmin used the word, remarkably respectful 
of the communities that they were portraying, the people that they were portraying, albeit that, as you'll have seen the image, they were not necessarily flattering, I would say, in every aspect. And yet I thought that, in the, it might be the occasional folk who would burn a bit, who burn a book, or who were, for whatever, in that case, kind of religious reason, or would take against a particular image or write a letter to the local journal. But it appears that actually people have responded enormously positively, and I'm not surprised because I felt the respect came through. Um, and in many ways, I thought much of what Yasmin was talking about, again, was the absence of respect that we so often see within our society and in our communities now. But onto the work more particularly. If you haven't been, many of you will now have been into the atrium here to see some of the images both from London Pittsburgh, those two shows, and this juxtaposition of those two shows, um, and also images from one or two other bits of Mark's work. But I would also encourage you, if you get a chance, to go to the gallery in Mayfair, the Alan Christia Gallery, which I, I had meant to go to a little while ago and haven't made the effort to or didn't manage to one way or another until today. And I just happened to be, it wasn't that far away. And because of the event this evening, I thought, well, I'll drop, I'll, I will go in today. I was certainly going to go and I will go back before it closes, I think, on the 24th? Or 24th. 24th. So get there before the 24th. Now, the reason for saying it is that I, if you look, I have a particularly, I have a, it's an invidious thing to say, but I have a favourite picture. Okay? I don't know how many there are images in here. But one of the London pictures, which, which was one of the ones that was shown, I'm not going to be able to find it. Which one is it? It's that one. So, the Summerford Grove Adventure Playground, which you won't be able to, but it was shown. It's, okay? Which I, I, I won't say why I like it now, but it just, it, for me, it was, a particularly, it was a particularly powerful image, I thought. And the young lad at yeah. the centre there just stares out of you in a way which says, invites you to read his mind, I think, invites you to imagine what he, who he is, what his background might be, where he comes from, what his concerns, his loves, his fears, his hates, whatever else it may be, and what is, and therefore how, and how he relates to these other people here. But the reason for mentioning it in relation to the gallery is, so I went to the gallery this afternoon, and of course, the big difference is the size of the picture. So in the book, which is a great, great image, and it's a large reproduction here, you're still looking at 12 by 6 or, or some such. I was reminded of going to Chicago many years ago to the Art Institute in Chicago, where little realising that one of my very favourite paintings, Edward Hopper's Nighthawks, is at the Art Institute in Chicago. I'd never seen it, as it were, in the flesh, in the oil, whatever it is, before. But walking around the corridor, he suddenly came across it and, and was stunned by the size of it. It's just colossal, or it was at least colossal um, with, as a kind of relatively to what I was expecting. And going into the gallery today and seeing, as it were, the full-size pictures here, they had a power and immediacy, I thought, which is extraordinary and, and just wonderful. So I urge you to go to that exhibition as well as enjoy the atrium here. The other reason is that having done that, I then walked out onto the streets of Mayfair, having looked at some of these images, and walked past them and looked, I felt, at people slightly differently from the way I might have looked at them had I not just been looking at these pictures. 
Um, I mean, I think I would have noticed people. I certainly, I think, would have noticed the homeless people in Mayfair, or of, of whom there are actually, it seems, quite a few. So that juxtaposition of extreme poverty and social exclusion against extraordinary wealth in certain parts of Mayfair is very visible. But also kind of forced me to think a little bit more immediately about those people on low wage, minimum wage, below minimum wage, if they're lucky, possibly living wage, who are actually supporting so many of the, the shops and the other places in this temple of wealth, this district, which is remarkable. So it was a, it was a very powerful experience for me. Um, the talk that Mark gave, I thought, was very like the book, which was, I felt he almost didn't talk to us about the central concern. I, th- I thought that, the, as it were, you know, so... Um, I forget the title of this event. Visioning, picturing. picturing. It talked about, I felt, talked about the pictures, talked about the history of them, um, but allowed them to speak, I thought, rather than telling us, even more than slightly, I thought, what might be learnt from these. And I think the book does it beautifully. And it was a little bit like my Mayfair experience, I think. It's the juxtaposition that was done on the screen so beautifully of bringing together the kind of have and have not for want of a better description but those different demographic community wealth related or absence of it experiences which works are just for me extraordinarily well Um, just a couple of words to finish then on um, so uh, Gwen was um, in the introduction you were very kind enough to, to mention the riots work and I'll just say a bit about riots very very briefly so I had the privilege a few years ago of um, a stressful privilege, but the privilege of working with people on the Guardian newspaper for well, about a year, probably in the end, um, responding to the 2011 riots in London, Manchester, Birmingham, elsewhere. And the basic premise of it was: Is it possible for so the Guardian had been at the forefront of reporting the riots? And given the way journalism is going um, and the need to do more than you know, journalism, as it were, as in a sense, has historically done, they immediately were wondering, is there more that can be achieved? Is there more that can be done here? And thought about you know, the possibility of teaming up in partnership with the university to essentially to do research, to marry journalism and social science, to study the rights. And so we did. And we did it in a way that was very unusual, I think, in the sense that the first phase of the study, which was basically trying to get a sense of who was out on the streets, who they were, why, why they were out on the streets, how they understood it, what they did, what their grievances, if they had grievances, were, etc., etc., etc. From the, from the moment that Paul Lewis, who was running things at The Guardian End, and I first talked about the possibility of doing a research study through the raising of money, setting up the project, hiring staff, training staff, interviewing people out on the streets. We interviewed nearly 300 rioters, none of, or almost none of whom had been arrested, so they were still at large, as it were to transcribing, analysing data and translating it into five or six days of very extensive reporting in the newspaper. It took us, I think, 16 weeks. 
which for university academics is just mind-boggling. I mean, it takes us 16 weeks to even agree that we might be interested in doing <laughs> this research, let alone finishing it. Um, and the, the reason for saying this is that it was... It was, a, it was essentially about impact, not in the way in which you, academics are these days kind of forced to think about impact, but essentially it was saying there are a whole bunch of people talking about the riots, political leaders and other commentators, and they're hijacking this. They're giving us a view of what was happening and forcing us to imagine that this is not about race, not about poverty, not about social inequality, it's all about gangs or feral youth or criminality Trainers. or something. Tra- or it's about conspicuous consumption. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, in Bath, it, it is. But it's about saying, can you do social science in a way that can, that can be part of a public conversation? And I think it can. And it can have an impact in parallel with the way in which... And that's what I was, the other thing I was really interested about Mark's description of what he was doing was it can have impacts. I don't think impacts, this would be, I'd be interested in hearing the response. Struck me from what you were saying, if I have it right, that rightly, impact wasn't its purpose, but impact is one of its, as it were, central motivations. It has a whole series of other things I guess it's trying to achieve, and that should be true of academic work too. I think it's not fundamentally about impact. And those who desire to tell us that that's what we should be about these days are horribly mistaken, it seems to me. But if we're doing something that can have impact, then that's enormously positive. And let me finish then by bringing it back to pictorial stuff, because the things that really made a difference, I think, in relation to understanding riots, both in 2011 and more recently, have been imagery. So fundamentally, in reading the riots, which what the project was called, the Guardian LSE one, some of the biggest impact, I think, was data journalism. And it was the visualization of some of the central messages of research, which I think was, was um, of great significance in some of, the, as it was, some of the impact we had on political conversation. But more recently, if we turn to the United States, I think, both in, if you think of Ferguson, Missouri, where Michael Brown was shot um, by a police officer. And then more recently in New York City, where there have been very significant protests in the aftermath of the decision not to prosecute police officers for strangling to death, in effect, Eric Garner. Mm-hmm. The two things, I, if you're familiar with them, for me, that stick in my mind, were um, in, in Ferguson, were the, were the placards which said, don't shoot, which were everywhere for a really, really long time. And then in the New York case, the Eric Garner case, again, it was protesters either saying or holding visual images saying, I can't breathe. And somehow there's something, I think, about the pictorial image and its immediacy when done well, which enables you to do things which the outpourings in black and white words of academics simply most of the time sadly fail to achieve. Thank you. Um, can I just say just two, two more things? <coughs> Several years ago, I went to Pittsburgh as, as well. I was, my best friend lives in Pittsburgh, but I wanted to make some radio programs on black Pittsburgh and, and white Pittsburgh, and which is how I got to this point coming here, because um, what was striking then to me 
and I'm talking about eight, eight years ago, something like that, was how clearly divided America was between black and white. They could not share the same space. And I remember feeling very sort of oddly proud that however bad we are here, we can never have that kind of geographical segregation in this country. There isn't a single ward in this country, if you read uh, Danny Dawling, Professor Danny Dawling, that however, uh, whatever the problems are between the various peoples of our nation, unlike America, there isn't this total separation of how pe where people live. And when I went into the black areas, which is very far away from where my friend lived, who is like me from Uganda, but now behaves like a very paranoid white American. We grew up in Africa, surrounded by black people. She's now to totally petrified of black people, except when they're looking after her children or wiping the floors. Uh, how a society can change you. She and I were born, she in Tanzania, I was born in Uganda. Year after year, she becomes exactly like a paranoid white American. Um, and so when I went into the black areas, she thought I was going to die and never come back. Actually, I had such a good time. Yeah, they were so fantastic. Uh, going into the homes, and it was extraordinary how, how warm they were. They still didn't like the tape recorder. Uh -huh. which is why I think you achieved something exceptional. They didn't like the tape recorder. It was okay if I wrote down what uh, they said. They didn't want the tape on at all. And sometimes they said, leave it outside. Maybe that's more threatening than the camera. Yeah, very threatened by it. But it was, an ex it was, like, it was like they were damn well going to live because it was so hard. And my friend lives in Squirrel Hill, which you know, mm, very, very, very privileged, well. huge, large houses. Uh, <coughs> and it's deadly dull. So there's an oddness about, you know, where the life is and where the privileges are, um, which really I was reminded of um, by looking at um, what you showed us. And another really brief story, because I just remembered it, um, two weeks ago, just after Christmas, in Liverpool Street, just outside Liverpool Street, which is, you know, where the city folk are, was a young woman, a young woman with a very kind of lovely um, pink cheeks and um, beautiful blue eyes, and she was wearing a bunny outfit on a very, very cold night, a pink bunny outfit with ears, and she was begging. So I, I gave her some money, and I said, but, but you know... Uh, are you okay? Why are you wearing this outfit? She said, because it keeps my ears warm, um, which just makes sense. And I said to her, so we chatted a bit, I said, look, I have to go in here for 10 minutes, and when I come out, uh, let's go and have a coffee. And the, she said to me, I haven't spoken to a human being for four days. So thanks for the money, but really thanks for talking to me. And it, I don't think I'll ever forget that. And I now talk to every people every time I give them money. Please do the same. The, the, the gap is so big now. I can perhaps jump in again one more time. I think what you've done in your, your work, all of you, all three of you, in different ways, um, 
is to get access to uh, communities or become part of communities um, that we see we don't see in the official media or in maybe mainstream academic work. Um, and as Yasmin said, through pictures, uh, Mark, you, you re- recover something or reclaim a space that perhaps doesn't exist um, otherwise. Ironically, perhaps, we seem to also live in an era where we're flooded by images. So there's a certain irony that images or pictures are required to make us reclaim a certain space for discussion. Um, and you also pointed all to the issue of trust, and I was, I was going to put the, the question back to you. I mean, Tim and Yasmin have been very humble about their own work, but I think you, are, you have achieved the same. You had to gain trust off, or you are gaining trust off, uh, different kinds of communities that are, that are just as difficult to get um, trust established mm-hmm. in. But maybe you can tell us a little bit more about it, Mark, how you did it, and to what extent you go into the work with very clear ideas about what you want to get out of it and what also changes along the way. And the second question afterwards would be about this impact issue, but maybe on the trust issue first. Um, A lot of it's to do with time. So um, I spend a lot of time with the community I work with. So um, normally I make a decision to do a project in a particular community. So it's me wanting to do it to begin with, which is important because, you know, I, I need to spend a lot of time there to get this kind of relationship built up. It's not something that happens over a week or two weeks normally it takes months or even years to build up levels of trust and um, I just try and be very accessible and open so it's normally just me on the streets with a camera meeting people and I think you know once people see that you're approachable and you know you're part of the community in a sense and you're just as vulnerable as they are then it, it kind of engenders a relationship and I think the work is a byproduct of those relationships as much as anything, you know, those kind of one-to-one relationships that you build up over time. Um, and you know, part of it's showing no fear as well. So, you know, I have been afraid in my work before, but as long as I don't show it and I'm open and accessible and treat people with respect, and nine times out of ten, it doesn't matter where you are or what's going on, you get it back from people. So, for example, I was in um, Braddock in the poorer part of Pittsburgh doing some of the pictures you've seen today. And uh, I walked down one particular street, which I was told specifically not to walk down because it was so dangerous. I walked down every morning at 9 o'clock. And the first morning, I passed these guys on the stoop smoking crack and drinking beer. So I kind of just nodded to them. They saw me walking down the centre of the street with all this camera kit like Clint Eastwood. And... um, Next morning I did the same, and there, there, there they were again, smoking crack, drinking beer, and so I said, I kind of nodded to them, nothing happened. And then the next day I went over and said hello, started talking to them, it turns out one of them is ex-military, so I started talking about Helmand, where I'd been six months earlier, and I got my dog tags out, and he got his out, and then we kind of bonded. <laughs> and then the next day they invited me in, and I had a beer with them at ten in the morning. And then the next day they said, would you take our photograph, please? So you can imagine if I'd have gone in immediately and sort of taken a picture um, and I'd have to run down the street basically, wouldn't I, after that? So it's a lot about building up the relationships respectfully and, uh, yeah. And would that be typical that um, people you, you work with or you get to know ask you to take the picture? Would you wait you until very that moment? Often, um, a lot of my best images are taken because someone will come to me and say, do you want to come to this party tonight or do you want to come and take pictures of this event or it's my granny's 80th birthday or whatever it might be 
And the other thing is I'm only there by the good grace of the community I'm being hosted by, so it's incredibly important. These relationships are really important because as soon as you piss one person off, it's very easy to piss off the entire community. And um, so you've just got to really always be conscious that, you know, it's a privilege to be there, and it really is. Mm-hmm. Because how on earth else would I get to live in Braddock for three months? How on earth would I otherwise get to live in Hellman for three months? It would never happen, would it? So it's an access, it's a passport, having this camera and being able to tell people's story. So you've got to take it fucking seriously. Mm-hmm. And you can quite easily ruin someone's life if you don't. So, you know, it's a big responsibility. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've just got to be... But normally it's OK, you've just got to be aware and act like a, like a human being, you know. Mm-hmm. That's it. And also, you know, it's an opportunity to tell stories that the media aren't. And as Yasmin said, the BBC in particular at the moment just aren't telling the stories properly. So, you know, something's got to change on that level. And art can provide that function. It should provide that function. Mm-hmm. Because it's, art is about reality. Art, photographs specifically, and films are about real life. Mm-hmm. There's a huge onus on it to do something with it. Yasmin, mm-hmm. you No, she's going to get Yes, okay. We will have to say goodbye to Yasmin at this point, so let me... I'm um, really sorry. That's thank you. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. Maybe we, I can ask one, one small follow-up question, and then I think we want to open it up to, to the wider discussion. But, um, Tim, I think you, um, and it's not maybe a surprise that the academic brings up the word impact, because we're being told so many times that academics need to have more impact, whatever that is. Um, but I'm wondering how you, Mark, in particular, think about having, having impact, because in your sort of um, uh, introductory remarks and the images, you, you hinted at it a few times, that you, you, you wondered whether you can change policy with this, which is, I suppose, also in academic circles. That would be ideal if we could claim that our research changes policy. It's most often not that direct, um, mm. and probably with your work it's not that direct either, but I could see many more moments where I can see, I think, your work has impact, and probably more than... Um, average academic work has. So I'm wondering what you're thinking about um, when, well, when you think, think your work is Well, I think both academia and the art world have an opportunity to make impact, so I don't think it's uh, the exclusive domain of the art world to be able to do that at all. I think academic can do it equally, equally well as, you know, Tim's reports have. So, um, you know, I don't think it's exclusive in that respect. A, a big part of it is just chipping away and, and keeping focus on one idea. So with these not words, the Toxic Waste Court Case book, for example, that took four years from start to finish to have an impact. So I came up with the idea, started visiting Corby, I got involved with the court case. The outcome of the court case by the families against the local council was ongoing when I started the book. I got funding for the book. The book was made. I sent it out to local council, uh, local environmental health officers, 433 of them in the UK. Got like four emails back, and that was it. So fuck all response. And then, um, so the project had failed ostensibly. And then two years later, the photographers' gallery I had a meeting with them, and they said, "Would you like to do a white cube show with us?" And I said, "Fantastic! It's a chance to use the, the gallery as a platform for, you know, for change again." So we did the show, then I got in touch with a lot of environmental health experts and environmental activist groups like Client Earth who organised a symposium. And ultimately, it looks like there's a manifesto definitely going to Parliament this year and the law might change on toxic waste disposal. So that's been a bloody long journey, you know, four or five years, in between which I went to Helmand as a war artist. You know, so these projects, 
have, sometimes have a long gestation. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's about chipping away. And I had this discussion with Alan Pistero as well that, you know, you've got to chip away at things and that's the only hope you have of making any difference, you know, is keeping at it. Mm-hmm. Do you want to add anything to that? Well, no, just to, just to underline it, really. I mean, I think the... It's, it's a, I don't want to drag it back to academia, but the, the problem of the way in which impact, for that's the word that's being used, it is treated um, in universities these days by funding councils and so forth is, is that it, it assumes... I think as you, you kind of been blind, it assumes that somehow there's some direct line between what we might do, whether it's as social scientists or photographers, and the outcome. And, of course, the world just isn't like that, never has been like that, isn't going to be like that. There might be one or two exceptions that prove the rule, but by and large, impact takes a very long time, if it ever happens... It's often serendipitous when it does occur, and it's usually communal. It's not one person's research. Mm-hmm. It's, it's someone's building on someone else's, you know, tied together with another's, which might have, in the end, if we're really lucky, you get the right galleries and the right um, campaigning groups and your wonderful work and a bit of good fortune, mm-hmm. there might be impact. And the same is true for us. So. Mm-hmm. Open it up. Okay, so um, we'd like to hear from you. Um, please ask your questions, and it would be nice to hear who you are, so please introduce yourselves. Uh, maybe we'll take two or three at a time, and then uh, if you're just addressing them uh, to the panel, or if you're asking someone specifically, please tell us. Okay, we'll start uh, with the lady there. One here and one there. So, first three questions. You're from Pittsburgh. Yeah, well, there are a number of reasons. I mean, uh, they were both made, both those bodies of work, Braddock's a Weekly about Pittsburgh and um, Here is London about London, obviously, were made um, one after the other. So one was made over Christmas, New Year, 2011. And six weeks later, I was in Pittsburgh doing a three or four months residency commissioned by the Andy Warhol Museum to make Braddock's a Weekly. Um, so one was to do with um, the, the chronology of it, and the other was I employed very similar strategies in both, which was, you know, this um, referencing photographic styles from the 70s and 80s to look at, to suggest that these kind of social forces that we were going through in the 70s and 80s to do with boom and bust politics are still, you know, still very present, you know, that race relations hadn't moved on, that the class system hadn't been broken down, that all these things hadn't really changed. And if you look at the images, they look like they could have been taken in the 70s or the 80s. So both those projects employed very similar visual strategies. And, uh, you know, when, I, when the gallery came to the uh, studio earlier this, well, about a year ago now, we looked at both bodies of work and we saw this connection immediately, you know, between the visual strategies and also 
a lot of the themes seem similar about inequality in some sense. So they weren't specifically made, those two projects, about themes of inequality. But retrospectively, looking at them, they both seem to talk about them, especially now when we're all talking about these issues to do with wealth and equality, to do with race. Um, and it's very clear to all of us that there's these massive differences in society getting bigger and bigger and bigger, both here and in America. It seemed to, to myself and the gallery a real opportunity to, to say something through the work. I mean, if I, you know, if I want to say racism is bad, I just say it. I've just said it. But photographs operate on a different, more sophisticated level somehow, don't they? They, they give us lots of information. They're a social document. So um, I think there's lots of, hopefully, lots of things going on in those photographs. Does, does that answer it? Uh, hi, I'm Harry, and I work at the Alan Christea Gallery. So I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by Mark's work every day. Um, <laughs> um, Mark, you talk a lot about truth and power and how you try to break down that, you know, you're not a magnum photographer telling someone this is an opinion. Um, and the way the conversations run this evening, we've talked a lot about the... There's two sides in this argument about inequality. There are, you know, the ones that are, you know, the unequal means people that are worse off and are better off. Um, and Yasmin spoke about gaining respect of minority groups and what have you. And Tim spoke about gaining access to these people that are out of the mainstream. And you said that you felt you had to gain respect for those people and to appreciate that, give them a chance to be seen, you know, away from that sort of. Um, opinionating eye. Do you still feel that you have to gain the same amount of respect for the people, you know, in Bougie Nightclub or at the Metal Exchange? Or um, do, you still, do you still feel you have to afford them that respect to not ruin their lives with a photograph, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, I, I definitely try to extend that to everyone, you know, and certainly the people in Sewickley who I lived with in, in Pittsburgh were lovely, you know, very affluent and lovely, you know. And I can say that about the people in Braddock too, that they were, you know, very, very hospitable and open, you know. Um, I mean, yeah, Bougie's was exceptional because I was only allowed to photograph in there for 20 minutes and then I was thrown out. So normally they don't allow photographers in there. So, you know, they made it very clear that because the New York Times cleared the way for me. On this one occasion, they would give me access, because normally, you know, Hugh Grant goes partying there and Lady Gaga and so forth, and the aristocracy, of course. So very, very difficult to get any kind of photographic access there. So that was really, I have to say, as an experience with one of my least um, uh, pleasant experiences in a, in a club. And it, I don't know if that was to do with the class system or the clientele or what, but it was really tough going. You know, and I've been to some hairy clubs before and, uh, and always had a great time. So, um, um, so yeah, so I'm, it's important to have some kind of real fundamental respect for, you know, whichever community you work with, I would say, you know, because who, who am I to judge, really? We have one question here, and then we'll proceed. We have two questions at the back. Hi, I'm Rosie. Um, I work at Greenpeace and I do a lot with UK Uncut and other 
kind of grassroots social justice movements. I just had a kind of two-part question. One, uh, if we're talking about kind of race and equality, academia, art, I was just wondering your reflections on uh, representation in those sectors so, or in those spheres. So kind of if I can make the assumption, like looking at the panel, it's not the most diverse panel I've ever seen in my life. Uh, so just kind of reflecting kind of wider on, you know, in the arts and in academia, do you think there is a kind of good level of diversity? Do you think there's more and what your questions, what your thoughts on that is? And then secondly, kind of talking about impact, I'm really interested in the kind of uh, call to action. And if, like as an artist, you've obviously, you, you know, you do have impact. I think you have, have done impactful work. But what is the kind of link between that call to action? So, for example, if you're doing a piece on living wage, would you put at the or low wage, would you then maybe in your exhibition put something about here's a link to a living wage campaign? Uh, and I'm just interested in kind of how far you think the role of the artist is in kind of pushing people to the next step of not just looking and thinking but doing. Dude, um yeah, I try. <laughs> um, well, the living wage thing, I sent out 50 copies of the book, um, London, Pittsburgh, to the biggest pension fund companies in the world, um, uh, requesting that they look at uh, ethical investment. So that's one thing I did um, regarding that particular body of work. Um, yeah, I think I, the work does have it. I'm kind of confused by what you mean, the, not the most diverse panel you've ever seen. I don't know, just because if we were, like, I was just asking generally about academia and the arts, and I just, mm. like, if we're talking about race, and are there enough black people kind of doing work about and uh, art about black people? And that's why I was just asking if you think there's enough diversity in the larger... In the art world? Yeah. I don't know the art world, so I'm just asking what you mean. Yeah, I mean, there's a great great black artist from Braddock called uh, Latoya Ruby Fraser, who makes fantastic work about um, uh, racial issues, which has been shown at the Whitney. Um, uh, She definitely has an impact on these issues, specifically, you know, in relationship to Pittsburgh and Braddock and and race and so forth. Sorry, I'm not answering you very well, Al. I'm really sorry. I'm just not sure which strand to pick up on. I think, yeah, you could give some good insights. That's all I wanted. <laughs> okay, maybe we can come back to that. We had uh, two questions at the back. Yes? Yes, you too. Um, maybe <laughs> they, can't, they can't hear you uh, on the balcony, yes. Hello, my name's Anna. I'm a drama student. And I think it's all well and good that you're doing all of this stuff. And, but this audience and everything, they're not people that are, you're actually addressing. So you've got the people you're doing the projects for and stuff. But then other people who, aren't, who are having a really crap time don't know what you're doing. Oh, they do. Cause I no, but they don't because there's so many. Think about how many people. I'm on are, the telly as well. Yeah, but I just... Channel 4 News, um, Newsnight. Sorry, Anna, I'm interrupting you. Go on. No, I didn't mean it like I wasn't telling you off. I was saying, how much bigger can you make it? How much can you make more people understand yeah. that you're fighting their corner? 
Yeah. Instead of just putting it in an art gallery that many people might not go to. Well, that's, I mean, you know, that's exactly it, Anna. That's the point. That's why we're doing the symposium. That's why I try and get my mug on the telly. That's why I try and send out the books. Is because I really be, believe Are you that, doing it in more places than just a uni? Because... Um, well, not Are you tonight, doing it in places where people that would aren't go, go to uni tonight. would... Oh, no, not tonight. All right. No, no, I am. I do, and I really do try as hard as I can. And that's a really important aspect of what I do is try and get messages out, you know, because I really believe that art has a social function. It can change things, you know, and it's got a kind of yeah, voice that the media doesn't have, think you know. Think, I think a lot of people feel that... I think a lot of people feel that they're not, you know, intelligent enough to enjoy art, and there's this like scale where lots of people think that only upper class people go and see art and I don't think they're given the chance to understand that it's for everyone yeah so I think maybe try and make places that are more less daunting to go to do you understand what I mean absolutely and that's why I try and make my work normally it has a primary audience which is non-art and then later it gets absorbed by the art world sometimes it doesn't sometimes it does and that becomes like the secondary audience. But quite often, the primary audience are the people in Port Glasgow who get a free copy of the book. Yeah. Then years later, it's talked about in the art world. Maybe, if I'm lucky, often it's not. These not words were sent out to local environmental health officers. Um, you know, the Helmand material took three years to get to the War Museum and be seen, and that was about a situation in, in a conflict zone, you know. Um, so... I think it's really important to try every single different aspect of communication you can. And one of my central concerns and worries at the moment is conflict. And I really think art has got a real responsibility to talk about that. Um, But it's finding the platform, you know, because the media don't do it properly. Art's not doing it properly at the Imperial War Museum, I don't think. So it's, it's finding, you know, how do we talk about it? Where do we talk about it? And I know so many artists, curators, writers, journalists all of whom are really frustrated about the situation and the lack of engagement with issues to do with conflict, to do with inequality, to do with, you know, the evils of injustice in society generally, you know. Where are these things being talked about? Because I don't fucking know. But the challenge also would be... So Mark's taking responsibility for all this, getting it out as widely as he can in all sorts of different ways... Perhaps you could take some people you know who, who ordinarily wouldn't go to a gallery to the gallery in the next week. Take a, take a small group. It's free. Take them, let them see it. Sorry? Well, if you take them... Well, start around the corner in the show here at LSE, so on your way out today. Or bring, or bring them here. But take a, take a few folks to the gallery. Can I just add as a footnote, actually, um, I had to actually nudge, I think, Mark, a little is fair to say, to put this on in a university setting and to have this event today. So I don't think it's actually kind of so, uh, it's not necessarily your usual environment. So I think it's one of these many experiments that you engage in and, and which I think well, adds to your integrity. it's wonderful to have a audience. You know, it's fantastic. And that's what my work's all about. So but I just want to emphasize that it's, to... this is not the usual setting you, no. you present your work in either. Absolutely. So... And that's how you make a difference, is by engaging non-art audiences, you know. Okay, we have two questions waiting. One at the back, there's a third one. So one, lady here, and that third one over there. And maybe we'll squeeze that one as well. Um, yeah, my name's Joe. Hi. First thing to say is, that's 
um, thank you for showing all this fantastic work you've been doing. Um, the second is to say, um, you talked a bit about um, your sort of tussle and conflict with um, with the MOD when you're trying to release some of the Hellman stuff in the particular format you wanted. And I wondered if you had any other um, kind of tensions or, or, or yeah conflicts with the kind of powers that be, whether it either be the pe- people who are commissioning stuff or kind of local authorities. You know, you're going to Pittsburgh, you're going to Port Glasgow, and you're presenting pictures of a community which some people might not view as especially flattering. I don't agree with that, but do you ever have problems with that, with local authorities, of that, that sort of, those sort of things? Um, always. <laughs> um, but um, no one's ever sued me, which is fantastic. Thank you. And um, no one's ever attacked me or stolen my camera kit. Uh, so, you know, normally, like I say, if you're respectful and you negotiate then things things work out okay in terms of people commissioning the work and then being unhappy with it I mean with Port Glasgow you know before the book went to print I had thumbnails of every single image in the book uh, on posters in butchers shops news agents in Port Glasgow saying we're going to print in a week with these images if anybody's not happy with it please let me know and we'll pull the image because if you have a picture of someone snogging someone they shouldn't and it goes out to every single person in the whole community you can quite easily ruin someone's life you know so things like that um the only image that i had to pull was there was a mockumentary being made about the sinking of the turpits and channel five news had come to ferguson's shipyard to use it as a kind of mock submarine base so they arrived this this tv crew with these swastika banners and they hung one from the balcony in ferguson's Shipyard, you know, Stanley Spencer made some of his paintings for the War Commission in the 40s. And the director of Ferguson Shipyard is a guy with a black sweep of hair and a moustache. And he stood on the balcony uh, like this. And I got a great picture of him above, and he loved it. And everyone, all these ship, ship workers, were pissing themselves laughing. Fantastic photograph. And the local council said, I said, got to get that in the book. And, you know, and I'm part Jewish myself, you know, so um, the good bit, you know. Um, so, um, but no, the local council said no to that one image. But that's the only image I've ever taken where, you know, it's been censored in some sense or someone's not been happy with me including it. So I think, you know, on, people like to be historicised. I think people see the amount of work I put into the projects and they respond to that as well, you know. Um, <laughs> So there's a sense of respectful documentation going on, hopefully. Okay, we have the next question here, please. If you could put your hand up so the mic reaches you. Yes. Hi. I think it's really, really brilliant what you've done. And um, I just wanted to ask, uh, well, oh, myself. I'm Keisha. I'm an IPhD student in web science at the University of Southampton. And I was just wondering, um, how do you see uh, citizen media and um, the explosion of information and, and photographs on the web um, contributing to the debate and the issues around uh, addressing inequality and how do you think it, the art world could help support that and how that, and how they could also help the art world um, in collaboration as well? 
Do you want to answer that one, maybe, too? Well, let me I'll just say a word. I mean, it's, it's making a massive difference. So um, at, at, at the end of my comments, I talked about both Ferguson, Missouri, and the Eric Garner case. And um, the Eric Garner case, in, in particular, an African-American man choked to death by a police officer um, using an illegal chokehold. Um, not going to be... There's not going to be brought to justice. There's going to be no formal legal hearing. But the very fact that we know what we know about that case is because it was filmed by a citizen journalist. And that's just one of a huge number of cases now. And it's really interesting, I think. So one of my long-standing interests has been policing of one source or another, and in particular issues of police accountability and governance. And um, if we take something as sort of central and everyday and symbolic as stop and search, there's two things happening now. First is, slowly but surely, all police officers, before too long, will have some form of helmet camera or uniform camera, which at the moment there isn't the technology to keep them on take all the way through someone's shift but it won't take very long at the speed at which things are developing now but which will film what an officer does and should film every interaction that they have with a member of the public and similarly there's no reason why in principle now given the ubiquity of mobile phones that people who are stopped and searched so long as they were were given the right to do it clearly there's all sorts of reasons why they wouldn't do it now but can use the technology that's available to film the interaction so the the possibilities in terms of both relationships and in terms of the ways in which we understand justice I think is is potentially is massively changed by citizen journalism or whatever we're going to call it but you know the citizen documentary maker as well as the citizen photographer Okay, so just mindful of the time, we'll take the last two questions together. So one was there, and the other one was there. That's right. Hi, um, I'm Indeep. I work for a, um, a council. Um, I had a specific quick question about uh, the piece of work you did with the um, uh, environmental health and the RAN land uh, reclamation. Um, how, I mean, what I love about this sort of art is it's, you know, um, shocking people out of the apathy, perhaps. And how did you get, how did that progress? How did the politician get on board? And how were they changed by what you did? Um, and are there any lessons there for people trying to change other situations? Okay, and let's see, uh, here, another, the other question here. Um, Hi, I'm Rashida. I'm from Friends of the Earth. Um, My question is basically about how media depictions of black people, so when I say black people, I mean like all non-white people across the past few decades has changed um, and what kind of cultural shifts in attitude that has caused, um, in particular in the wake of the recent Paris shootings and what's taking place in the U.S., Okay, so we have two questions, but I think maybe both Tim can uh, come into... Could answer the first yes, one, and maybe yes. Tim answer the yeah. second one, because yeah, I think that's, Tim yeah. more qualified maybe to... Is that okay? Um, 
as I said, it was a, such a long path with these not worth. It was four or five years, you know, from uh, conception to realization to, you know, to having the book sent out and then the exhibition and then getting client earth, these activist environmental lawyers on board and, um, and then organising the symposium at the photographer's gallery. And that was very bizarre because it was full of contaminated land officers, you know, at the photographer's gallery. And uh, I think there were two people from the art world there. So it was all about very heavy policy issues, you know. Section 2B of the Contaminated Land Act 1967, paragraph 4. You know, we came up. I managed just about to get my head round it all. And we came up with a manifesto of things that we wanted from, you know, to propose to government. But the thing is, the criminal thing about it is that I was just shocked, you know, because I was taking photographs in Corby because of the Scottish community there, because it all moved there to Northampton for work in the steel mills in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. So it's called Little Scotland. It's this kind of small uh, working-class community. Everyone speaks with the Glaswegian tang, twang, and it's surrounded by these very twee English towns like Huntingdon and Kettering. And you go into Corby and, you know, they sell iron brew and... Uh, you know, whiskey-flavoured tea and shortbread and they've got Rangers football supporters clubs and so forth. And So it's a kind of little little Scotland it's known as. So I just became fascinated with that, you know. And then I found out about the court case and I started, you know, talking to families and it affected the whole community. And then I realised the court case was ongoing and there was an opportunity to have an impact on it. And um, when, even when the court case was concluded and the judge ruled in favour of the families, who said it was more likely than not that the birth defects, the cluster of birth defects, had been caused by this improper land reclamation of the former British steel site in the 1980s. Even when they ruled in favour of the families, still nothing changed, the law didn't change. And then, you know, the book had been finished, you know, I think 2010 and sent out 2011. And then there's still these cases coming up. So there's a place called Hawkston in Cambridge where it's a former biochemical plant. It's been many different companies have owned the plant, you know, not just Bayer. But at one point it was Bayer, then it was another company, another company. And basically it's the same thing. It's reclaimed land, which is going to be turned into flats, and they've just dug it up and hung out to dry. And basically the horses in the fields are crying because of all the shit in the air. People are having nosebleeds. And this is going on at the moment. You know, nothing's being... It's not being talked about in the media. It's just a few activist groups who are discussing it on YouTube. The local council were in bed with the property developers. So, of course, you know, they've got a blanket on the whole thing. So to think that something like Corby is just an isolated event to do with, you know, environmental nutters is just wrong. It's happening all the time. So, you know... And it's not just birth defects. There are all these things happening on a subclinical level to do with early death, you know, that we're not aware of because we're talking about invisible things, pollutants. I have to apologise. I, I don't know if you still have the mic. I didn't completely catch the, the second question. Um, it was just a question about how the media depictions of um, black people um, has changed over the past few decades and sort of what shift in cultural attitudes that has caused, sort of in the wake of the... Uh, and this is a quite a pertinent question as well, especially in the wake of the Paris shootings and um, the, sh um, the killings in the US. So I just wanted uh, an opinion. Wow. <laughs> uh, it's a very good question. 
um, and one I'm going to struggle to do justice to, I think. I mean, if it doesn't sound... It's going to sound horribly trite, I think, my answer. I mean, I think... And it's, it's, it's the age-old kind of historical truism. I think you can see continuity and change. So, I mean, on the one hand... Um, in some ways, and, and some of the change is not positive, I think, as well. The thing that's, I mean, and this is probably more what I'm seeing than what's out there, or, or perhaps it's not, but post the riots, post those American cases that we're talking about, but also I think a lot of imagery of black and minority ethnic people that's shown most regularly is actually quite both stereotyping and divisive in the sense, and exclusionary um, no, in the sense that I think there are very particular types of image which are quite common and going back to things that Yasmin raised earlier on I think, in just the same way she was talking about certain types of stories not being told, I think there are particular types of image which are, which are simply not seen and in a way it's one of the reasons that this work is, is so powerful. One of the other continuities, though, I think, is, in a sense, precisely what you were showing in some of these photographs, which is in both wealthy and less wealthy, impoverished communities, you can see quite a lot of cultural change, I think, but also extraordinarily strong cultural similarity over the decades. So the dances... Um, Yes, the raves look a little different from the 50s dances, but in many ways the parties look indistinguishable from many of the things I think that we would have, the photographs that we see in the 40s and the 50s and probably earlier. So, I'm sorry, it's a terribly inadequate answer to your question, but, but I've, I can finish on a slightly different thing, but a personal note. I was also struck, and this is about pictures of, of predominantly of white people, um, I was really struck by some of the images with pictures I'm familiar um, with by a photographer called Martin Parr, who um, has done a whole series of different things. I know he's worked terribly well, but he did a huge amount of work in a place called New Brighton. Just uh, it's, it's in Merseyside. It's very near where I was born and grew up. And he um, photographed the kind of the promenade and the what was called the beach, which if you've ever been to Merseyside is pretty laughable. Um, but again, what I thought was a huge number of people who didn't live there took enormous offence at these pictures. Um, the people who lived there loved them. And in many ways, I thought that told the story of, so I'm just to bring it back to London, Pittsburgh, which was kind of, I think for all of us it's terribly accessible, but why I was really struck by the kind of my first point earlier on by the way in which it captures something, some truth about the nature of those communities and the diversity of those communities. I thought it was wonderfully powerful, and thank you. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Uh, Gwen, maybe... No, that was a perfect end point. <laughs> okay, well, uh, I think there are so many issues uh, uh, discussed here, but I think what is really interesting is this difficulty, right? The grappling with the issue putting it on the table and maybe finding the right voice, the right image to put. I mean, for, probably for us as an academics, when we grapple with our research methods, it's to find that voice, right? To find the 
truth, right? The, the true representation which brings us into the sort of more into the imagery. Uh, what I'd like to do is to thank all our panelists and thank you as the audience. Um, I would like to invite you to other events that are organized by the Conflict Research Group. Um, uh, another one that is going to uh, stimulate a lot of thinking is um, an event uh, where Jonathan Powell, who was the Chief of Staff to Tony Blair and the Chief British Negotiator on Northern Ireland, and he'll address the question whether we should talk uh, to terrorists. And this is on uh, Tuesday, the 5th of March. Uh, thank you very much for coming to this event, and thank you to all of you.